Welcome to Creation Training Radio and TV. I'm your host, Mike Rill, the founder and president of Creation Training Initiative. And today we're going into part two with Dr. David Metton on Is Evolution Possible? Are you ready to go with part two, Dr. Metton? I think so. And oh. I promise, no more magic tricks. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's your show. Okay. Well, welcome back, Kang. Uh, you know, Mike and I, we do a lot of flying. It seems like I spend half the time in the air some years. Uh, here a couple of weeks ago, I was flying back from Milwaukee, and I looked out the window, and it just occurred to me that uh, there wasn't a thing down there but air. Uh, I was sitting in the middle of a bunch of parts, really, when you think about it, and I thought, what part of this plane flies? The, the seats don't fly. Uh, the doors in the plane don't fly. The people don't fly. Even the pilots can't fly. I looked at the carpet, I thought, maybe a flying carpet, but I thought better of that. Uh, and it occurred to me, 25,000 feet above the Earth's surface, going approximately 500 miles an hour, setting in the middle of a lot of non-flying parts. As soon as I got home, I got on the Internet, and I entered the question. That's what's great about the Internet. You can just about put any question in and get some sort of answer. I asked... How many parts in a Boeing 747, which is what I was flying in? And uh, it came up 6 million non-flying parts in a Boeing 747, most of which are like rivets or fasteners. You know, if you had all those parts scattered out in the runway, uh, it would be quite a scene, but you wouldn't be able to fly it. You could have all the correct parts, but they, they wouldn't fly just because you have the parts. And this raises a, an interesting point. So often I hear people say, how can anyone believe the eye could have formed by chance? It's way too complex, or it's so complex. You know, my friends, that's not the issue. Complexity is not the issue. This uh, field full of non-flying parts that we have here, that's complex. You know the only thing the word complex means? Sure a lot of ways to put this thing together. Or this thing sure has a lot of parts. Aren't we really saying more than that when we say that the eye is complex? I think we have more in mind. It's not just the complexity. It's really another word we should be using, specified complexity. You see, if I wanted to assemble this airplane from its parts, all scattered out on the runway, what's the first thing I'd need? Yeah, the manuals, <laughs> the instruction book. I can see it now, what, a forklift truck full of manuals would come out onto the runway, and I'd take manual number one, open it up to page one, and it would say, uh, take screw A and uh, fit it into hole B, and, you know, on and on we'd go till we assembled the whole plane. That's called specification. In other words, it means not only do we have a lot of parts, which is complexity, but there's a specification to how those parts are to go together. So that really refines uh, and redefines complexity in a way that's getting a little closer to what we have in mind when we're, say, talking about the human eye being unlikely. Uh, and then once you specified uh, with the manual and put it all together, hopefully it would fly. And why would it fly? Simply because it's specified? Well, that too, but also now it's integrated. When all of the parts are in the right position, they're integrated, so they work together in concert. In fact, concert's a good name for it. I like to go to the symphony here in Cincinnati, and uh, I show up early just to hear them tune up. Have you ever heard a symphony orchestra tune up? It's the worst sound you could ever imagine. 
squeak, squawk, tinkle, boom, bang. I mean, every time I hear it, I think, that's it. We're not getting any music out of this group. But you know, if you're patient, eventually the conductor walks out. And when the conductor comes out, everybody opens to a particular score. Ah, the score specified. Specification in this complexity. And then the conductor leads the orchestra, and he sets the tempo and the dynamics, sets more specification. And because of this specification in the score and from the conductor and from the composer, it all works together, literally in concert, as an integrated complexity. And you know, that's what we're talking about when we say, how can you believe the eye would have formed by chance? Not that it's too complex. It has too much specified and integrated complexity to have ever formed by chance. I think we established that in our last uh, get-together. Well, here's a question. Can we objectively distinguish chance from design? Can you tell one from another? You know, some people say, oh, you can't do that. Well, we do it all the time. It's really pretty obvious to us. Uh, let's look in the dictionary. This happens to be the American College Dictionary published by Random House, and we'll look up the words so we're using them properly. Chance, which is a significant part of what evolution is all about, as we've seen. Chance is defined as the absence of any known reason why an event should turn out one way rather than another. Synonyms would be fortune, fate, and luck. How does that compare to the word design? Design is defined in this dictionary in this way, to plan and fashion artistically or skillfully, to intend for a definite purpose, to, con to form or conceive in the mind, to contrive, to plan. What's the key word that keeps coming up here? We could sum it up under one thing, foresight or foreknowledge. Knowing in advance what you want to do and then setting out to do it. Wow, it's no wonder the evolutionists can't stand the word design. If you're teaching in a high school these days or junior high and you're teaching biology, there's a lot of school districts, if you were to suggest that the eye shows even a trace of intelligent design, you could lose your job. And you can see why. Evolution absolutely cannot tolerate or stand this concept of foreknowledge, of purpose, uh, this concept of planning. Man, I'm glad I taught a, at a medical school where I taught, <laughs> on some occasions, former students of Nobel Prize winners. I'm glad I taught there and not over at some junior high school because I'd never kept my job for more than four months at a junior high or a high school. Sooner or later, I'd have been critical of evolution and uh, I'd probably lose my job. But teaching at the medical school, you didn't have to teach about evolution. In fact, you start talking about evolution in the middle of a lecture, say, on the kidney to a bunch of medical students, they just put their pencils down and sit back. Uh, hey, they're grateful for the break, and they do believe in evolution. It's just that they know this is not important enough to be on the exam, and they sure aren't going to use it in the practice of medicine. Makes you kind of wonder, why do teachers spend so much time in evolution when it's so utterly useless in the real world of, of uh, applied science? Well, that's quite a difference, isn't it, between chance and design. And what we see in the human body and everywhere we look in God's creation is overwhelming evidence of design. In fact, the only way we can deny it, as the Bible says in Romans chapter 1, you have to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. You have to take the truth that's there and sit on it. Well, have you heard of Richard Dawkins? This is an interesting guy. He's retired from Oxford University. He's a professor there in biology, reached mandatory retirement age. He's about the most outspoken atheist of our day. In fact, Dawkins recently wrote a, a book in which he said any parent that raises their children to be a Christian and especially believe in creation is actually engaging in child abuse. 
because this poor child will be so dumbed down he won't be able to hold any kind of job. Wow, that's a pretty considerable contempt for Christianity, isn't it? Uh, you know, it's been said of Dr. Dawkins that this man knows more things that aren't true than perhaps anyone alive. Uh, well, Richard Dawkins wrote a book early on in his career that was called The Blind Watchmaker, in which he argued there was no watchmaker. <laughs> uh, as Paley once said, there was the evidence for creators, like the evidence for a watchmaker. You can see it in a watch. The subtitle of this book, The Blind Watchmaker, is as follows. It's a long subtitle, but it's part of the title of the book. Why the Evidence of Evolution Reveals a Universe Without Design. Got that? The evidence actually reveals a universe without design. But then, incredibly, on page one, uh, that would be the first page, he wrote the following. I can't believe he wrote it, but he did. He said this. Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having, having been designed for a purpose. You know, if I were an atheist and felt there was no trace of purpose in the whole universe, I would try to avoid saying that on the first page of my book, arguing that there is no purpose. Well, he's obviously so convinced of his atheism that it doesn't trouble him in the least that biological systems just scream design. <laughs> that doesn't trouble him. Why not? Because there's two things he knows for absolute certainty. One, there is no absolute certainties. And two, there's no God. So, no creator. So, it doesn't make any difference if biological systems look designed. That doesn't mean anything. It just means that nature somehow counterfeits design. Well, I agree with him. Biological systems really do give evidence of design. Uh, looking at the research that I did over the years in a number of different areas, one in this whole field of placentation or the development and function of the placenta. Placenta is an amazing organ. Uh, I would rank it right up there with uh, the most marvelous evidence for creation in, in the human body. Of course, the placenta is only there when needed to support the baby. And at first, the placenta develops in advance of the baby and is in many ways more complicated than the baby. You have to get the plug in, right, uh, to plug this baby in, and you need to get it going before the baby get, develops very far. And what does the placenta do for a living? It's easier to tell you what it doesn't do. It's not a brain. It's not a heart. It uh, doesn't pump blood. Almost everything else you can think of, it does. For example, the placenta is a brain, is a, is a lung. Uh, it's been shown, uh, sadly, in some emergency situations that uh, uh, a baby can survive without the development of its lung up until the time that it's delivered and the placenta is taken away, then it dies. Uh, the placenta functions as the whole urinary system, the, the kidneys. It functions as the endocrine system. It functions as the whole digestive system, complete with liver and pancreas and everything else. And of course, it's done with the assistance of the mother. Uh, three things working together in such a beautiful way, the placenta, the mother, and the baby, all three. Take any one of those three away, and the reason for the other two uh, becomes quite different. So uh, what a marvelous organ. It does everything. It allows the organs of the body to develop before, uh, uh, before they need to be used. Well, the placenta can be thought of as uh, like a little grove of trees, a little grove this big around. And there's about 20 little trees in there with trunks and branches going out to the twigs. And when a placenta unplugs and you look at its surface, you can see little bulges on the surface of the placenta, which is at the tops of these trees uh, that have unplugged from the endometrial wall. And baby's blood runs inside of these trees, sort of like the sap in a tree and the blood runs right out into the little twigs and branches of each of these 20 trees. 
And when you look at the picture before you here, you can see that uh, uh, we've cut across one of those little twigs, one of those little villi from the placenta. We've cut right across. And uh, it's surrounded with a kind of a pink layer uh, with nuclei. And inside you see red blood cells and a white blood cell or two that belongs to the baby. And then just outside of the twig, you can see a red blood cell, several red blood cells, and a white blood cell that belong to mother. And those two are separated by a barrier. And that barrier is really remarkable. It's really the largest cell in the body. The whole surface of the placenta, as far as we know, is a single cell called a syncytial trophoblast. And everything that passes from mother's blood to baby's blood has to go across it. And uh, what a marvelous system. But you know what a problem is? Iron doesn't go across the placental barrier by itself. Uh, the baby needs iron to make blood, but uh, it can't make the blood without it getting across from the mother's red blood cells. And to do this requires a protein called transferrin. And without transferrin, none of us would be here. Just think of it, 100,000 different proteins in our body, and if we just missed transferrin, that'd be it, it'd be all over. It wouldn't make any difference what else you got right. Well, so as you can see, when I look at biological systems, I see a lot of evidence for intelligent design. Uh, we have a neighbor who uh, put up a fence. It's a picket fence. It kind of looked like the picture I'm showing you here. There was a short board and a long board, and a short board went along like that. Very nice picket fence, but my other neighbor built this fence in the lower level. Uh, don't you kind of wonder about him? Uh, he has boards missing. He has long ones together, short ones together. Which of these two fences has the most order? Well, it would be the top fence, wouldn't it? But which of the two is the most complex? Ah, tricky question. Huh? The bottom fence is the most complex. Why is that? Well, because you could make a very simple set of instructions for the top fence. Start with a stack of short boards and a stack of long boards, put up a short board, put up a long board, continue in this fashion until you run out of boards. But what kind of instruction set would you have for this fence in the lower level here? I mean, where do you begin? We have boards missing, long and short together. It's complex, but what question should we be asking? Is it merely complex or is it possibly specified complexity or integrated complexity that we talked about in our last session? Yeah, it's specified and it's integrated. You know what? Your neighbor's trying to communicate with you and he's doing so with fence boards and using international Morse code. So you see, the short boards are really the dots and the long boards are the dashes. This really spells the word information. If you heard this coming over on a code key, it would go did it, da it, did it, da it, da da da, da it, da da, da down the line. And people understood Morse code or understand it would know you're spelling the word information. Do you realize using boards, long boards and short boards in Morse code, we could spell out the entire Encyclopedia Britannica or the whole Bible. Does this give you a new respect for boards you never had before? No, you see, it's not the boards. That's not the beauty. The beauty. Could have used big rocks and little rocks or flashing lights. The beauty is the language that is being communicated here. And the coding system, in this case Morse code, to convey this language. If you're going to communicate with your neighbor, you have to know, does he speak English, French, German, what? Then you have to decide, what do you want to say to him? In this case, it's just one word, but it could have been a whole paragraph of words or a book of words. And that would be more like a protein, by the way, once you get into a whole paragraph of, of words. So uh, the, the beauty is not the boards or the, 
uh, it's, it's, it's the code. And it's not even the, the beauty is not entirely the code. The real beauty is the information that's being conveyed. Do we have a code system in our body? And by the way, nobody's ever seen a coding system come into existence by chance. All codes are the product of the human mind that we know of. Uh, do we have a code? We sure do. It's called the genetic code. It's the source of information in our cell. You see inside the nucleus, you have this DNA that's kind of coiled up like a phone cord. And uh, it unravels. And when it unravels, a copy is made called messenger RNA. That's inside the nucleus. It needs to be out in the cytoplasm to do its work. And by an incredible stroke of dumb luck, there's a bunch of holes in the nucleus. And the uh, messenger slides out through those holes. No, of course, not dumb luck. God's marvelous cell biology plan. The message comes out, and it can be modified in many ways that we can't get into. So that's not the end of the story for the message. Uh, it can go through post-translational modification. But at some point, this message feeds through a machine called a ribosome. Sort of like film going through a movie projector or tape through a tape recorder. And when this happens, amino acids matching up with a coding system are assembled in their proper sequence to make proteins. And this happens so fast that these proteins are made in milliseconds. Think of 400, 500 amino acids long to put together that fast. So what a marvelous genetic code we have. And I have no doubt that coding system is a product of a designer. Give you an idea what a protein might look like. You know these beads people are wearing nowadays that have different colors and they have letters of the alphabet and they can spell words? Imagine if we let the 20 different amino acids used in our body be represented by 20 different color beads, each with a letter A through T for 20 different beads. And then if we consider that a typical protein might be about 500 amino acids long made up of some combination of these 20 different uh, beads, the question I'm asking you, is how many strings of beads that would differ by at least one bead, how many different strings could we make of a 500 amino acid long string? Well, the answer is lots. <laughs> Who can even uh, calculate such a thing? It's immense. Well, let's uh, get back to uh, talking about hemoglobin again. Uh, here in the body, we see red blood cells inside of an artery. These red blood cells are necessary to carry oxygen to, say, our big toe. And we're asking warm blood to do it. And warm blood doesn't carry uh, oxygen very well. In fact, if you drink warm water, it tastes flat because the oxygen has been driven out of it, whereas cold water tastes better. It has oxygen dissolved in the water. But our blood is not cold. It's warm. It shouldn't really carry any oxygen. But it does because of hemoglobin in our red blood cells. So uh, years ago, uh, an evolutionist and atheist by the name of Isaac Asimov come up with what he called the hemoglobin number. It was part of a book called Miracles of Science, was the name of the book. And in this book, Miracles of Science, he had a chapter, Hemoglobin in the Universe. Now, bear in mind, Asimov was an atheist. And yet, he wrote this fascinating article about the improbability of putting the hemoglobin protein molecule together by chance. If we look at the arrangement of amino acids in hemoglobin, we can see from this illustration there's 539 amino acids in human hemoglobin. And one way to put them together, if the amino acids were represented by letters of the alphabet, is just A through T, A through T, A through T, A. One way to do it. The question is, if you started out with the right proportions of all of the amino acids in hemoglobin, how many different ways could you put hemoglobin together? Asimov figured this out. And he said that 
there was four times 10 to the 619th power, different ways you could put hemoglobin together if you started with the right proportions of all of the amino acids. My friends, this is a big number. Uh, you see it printed out here. I don't even know how you pronounce a number like that. It's basically a four with 619 zeros after it. If you just looked at the first nine zeros after the four, no clock has ever ticked that many times. Clocks haven't been around that long. They don't tick that fast. And remember, every time we add a zero, this number gets 10 times bigger. Let's add a, a lot of zeros. How about 80? I chose this number, four times 10 to the 80th, or four with uh, 80 zeros after it. I've heard that uh, this uh, would probably exceed or equal the number of atoms in the known universe. Have any idea how big a number this is? The number of atoms in the known universe. And we haven't even begun to exhaust the total number of ways of putting hemoglobin together if we did so by chance. Remember, add one more zero, the number's 10 times bigger. If you bear with me, one more number. 150 zeros after the four, still such a tiny fraction of our hemoglobin number that uh, hardly worth discussing. But four times 10 to the 150th is considered to be the universal probability bound, or one times 10 to the 150th. Statisticians say that if the chance of something happening is less than one out of this number, the opposite is a certainty. It isn't going to happen. And by the way, we need to be careful here. We just can't invoke endless periods of time to make highly improbable events seem more probable. Because in doing this, you undermine the whole statistical foundation of modern science. I don't even know how to tell you how big this number is. I, I guess the best shot I can take at telling you how big this number is. This number, this hemoglobin number, is actually bigger than the current American national debt in dollars. That should give you some idea how big this number is. Well, I think we ought to let the evolutionists get a few words in here. Uh, Dr. Paul Davies is a professor of astrobiology at Arizona State University. Astrobiologists study the origin of life in other galaxies. <laughs> That's a scientific discipline without any object of study. Uh, anyway, he's an expert on the origin of life, and he's a thoroughly honest man. Look at what he has to say about the chance of uh, uh, the, the, the DNA getting in the right arrangement to form uh, the atoms that would be necessary for life. How did stupid atoms spontaneously write their own software? And where did the very peculiar form of information needed to get the first living cell up and running come from? Here's your definitive answer from an expert in the origin of life. Nobody knows. Simple as that. Well, I'll stick with scripture. <laughs> Here's a verse so simple I can understand it. I love those kind of verses. I don't even need a commentary. For nothing is impossible with God, we learn in Luke chapter 1, verse 37. Here's another little lovely verse that is so simple I, I follow it completely. For every house is built by someone. I'm not going too fast, am I? I didn't think so. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. Well, I've got a question for you. Some of the brightest people that I've met in my career are people that I've worked with over the years at various medical centers and research institutions. And I've known some really brilliant ophthalmologists who study the eye, who tell me there's not the slightest trace of intelligent design in the human eye. And of course, they say that because they simply reject any possibility of a designer. So they have to say there, there's no evidence of intelligent design in the human eye. I've known otolaryngologists who study the ear, nose, and throat, 
who are experts on hearing and the ear. And I've been told by some of these men that they see no evidence of intelligent design in the hearing mechanism of the ear in the organ of Cordy. I know they know better than that. If they didn't know better than that, I wouldn't let them touch my body. But why do they say these things? Once again, they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. I'll, I'll just run you down through just a couple of verses in Scripture that will tell you what the problem is when people try to approach the marvelous structure of the eye and the ear from the point of view of an unbeliever. Look at this verse from Proverbs chapter 20, verse 12. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made even both of them. Well, we don't have to worry about the eye and the ear. Our Lord just said it straight away. You see the eye and the ear, he said to us, I made them. What's the problem there? Well, look at this next verse, Psalm 94, verse 9. He, that is God, who planted the ear, shall he not hear? And he that formed the eye, shall he not see? I have a question for you. How well do you figure the creator of the ear can hear, can hear our thoughts? And how well do you think the creator of the eye can see? He can see into our hearts. And mind you, this is the creator who once said, you shall be perfect as I, the Lord thy God, am perfect. No exceptions. Uh, how are you doing on the perfection scale? I'm coming up pretty short. Uh, can I afford to have God looking into my heart and uh, hearing my thoughts? Short answer is no, except he's not just my creator. He's my savior. God sent his son into the world, become sin for us, to offload our sins unto him. And now we are justified in Christ. And isn't that wonderful? Because now it's great to have a seeing and a hearing God. The psalmist tells us the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears are open unto their cry. Mike? Well, thank you, Dr. Mitten, for your wisdom and your, your background and all that you've taught us here today. If you'd like to hear more of Dr. Mitten, we'd like to hear from you. Just email us at info at creationtraining.org. That's I-N-F-O at creationtraining.org. And we'd love to have you back more, Dr. Menton, and share with us the incredible knowledge and background you have, not only about the human body, but also about the Word of God. Well, thank you, Mike. I'd be happy to. Thank you, and God bless you. If these lessons had been a blessing to you, you might consider financially supporting the Ministry of Creation Training Initiative. You can do this by going to our website, creationtraining.org. Again, that's creationtraining.org. Your tax-deductible donation of just $20, $50 or more a month, or a one-time gift of any amount will make you an education partner in building an army of Christian educators who can teach the biblical account of creation and train others to be able to defend their faith and be biblically faithful to God's Word as it states in 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear.